0: Good evening. This is Dr. Dan Guerra. come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the beautiful inland Pacific Northwest of the USA. Today is still the 19th of February 2021. This is part two of Membrane Physiological Biochemistry. Now, I want to take you back a little bit further even than what we were doing uh, earlier today, which was talking about membrane proteins. I want to discuss a little bit of basic chemical equilibrium with Now, I want you to consider a reversible reaction taking place at a constant temperature. So you can say, for for the simplest reaction, you can say XA plus YB goes to ZC plus Z prime D. That's a freely reversible reaction. Now, in that equation I just told you, the reactants A and B with the coefficients in front of them, I gave you just as letters, will combine to form products C and D. Concentrations of A and B decrease until they reach values that don't change with time. This is just straightforward chemical equilibrium. So the time-invariant concentration of reactants and products, we have a name for that, and it's called an equilibrium concentration. Therefore, the ratio of those concentrations, or we can talk about activities, because this is a dynamic event, right, activities or active concentrations, if you like that, is going to be a characteristic of each specific reaction, and we're going to call that the equilibrium constant, big K, capital K. So K is going to be equivalent to, in the numerator. Concentration of C to its coefficient, that's how much is their power, times D to its coefficient of of concentration, divided by A to the A and B to the B. Okay, so that's the equilibrium constant. C to the C power times D to the D power, where C and D are concentrations, okay, of specific substances, right? And then that's divided by A to the A power uh, times B to the B power. Okay, So that's just your regular equilibrium constant. These are going to be important because we're going to talk about membrane transport. Now note that the equilibrium, when you get the forward and the reverse reactions, proceed at the constant stable rate. Now I want to bring you into an understanding of free energy. So a criterion for equilibrium is that the total free energy, also known as Gibbs free energy, of the reaction is always at a minimum. If we add more reactant or more product, the reaction is going to proceed spontaneously as long as the value for the Gibbs free energy will decrease. So by that standard way of writing it, a reaction in the direction of decreasing Gibbs free energy, will be spontaneous. And the reaction in the direction of increasing Gibbs free energy will not be spontaneous and will not occur at a closed system. Okay. So as any reaction proceeds, the incremental amount of the change of the Gibbs free energy can be given by the change in Gibbs free energy equals the summation of VI times GFI products minus the summation over I, of VIGFI reactants, where VI is a stoichiometric coefficient, like we mentioned last time, a coefficient for species I, whatever that molecule is. And the GFI is the free energy of the formation per mole of species called I. So, if the Gibbs free energy, the change now, the delta G in Gibbs free energy is less than zero, and by that I mean the delta G is negative, and therefore the Gibbs energy decreases as the reaction proceeds, then that reaction proceeds spontaneously. Okay, just as I said. So, if but if delta G is the Gibbs free energy, it's greater than zero. It means that the delta G is positive, obviously, and therefore the Gibbs energy increases as the reaction proceeds. Then the reaction will not uh, then the reaction proceeds spontaneously in the opposite direction. It won't go in the forward direction. (laughs) Okay, by standard nomenclature. Therefore, a delta G of zero simply means the reaction is at equilibrium. That's all that means. Okay. So we can give you a couple more equations here. I know that I'm giving you this verbally, but um, I just want you to follow through with this. You don't have to remember all this, but the values for Gibbs free energy for reaction is very important because it predicts if a reaction is even possible. Okay. And you can do this experimentally because you have reactants. So you have a way of measuring the concentration of reactants and their coefficients at the beginning, and you can measure the concentration of the products and their coefficients at the end of the reaction. Right? Say it's an enzyme catalyzed reaction, right? Like glucose plus ATP goes goes to glucose 6-phosphate plus ADP. right? And so in that reaction, you would put the products over the reactants. Right? The products are gonna be glucose 6-phosphate plus ADP, and the reactants are going to be glucose, glucose and ATP, concentration multiplied with their coefficients in the superscript. Okay, so that's basically what we're talking about here. So we've identified, I hope, uh, what I mean by free energy and also about the equilibrium constant. So you know that a given reaction occurs spontaneously, which means it's going to proceed in the forward direction when you write a chemical equation, right? And we could also say that the change in entropy is greater than zero, the change in the Gibbs free energy less than zero, and the relative magnitude of the reaction quotient Q versus the equilibrium constant, we told you what that was, K. Now, remember that K is greater than the reaction quotient. Then the reaction proceeds spontaneously to the right, as it's always written. That results in that conversion of glucose plus ATP to glucose phosphate plus ADP. That's our uh, example. Now, conversely, if K is less than Q, then the reaction proceeds spontaneously to the left. Which means it goes in the opposite direction, obviously. That results in net conversion of products to reactants. Now, if the K equals Q, then this system is at equilibrium, just like we said, and no net reaction will occur unless something changes the system. Okay. So this is this is a really important concept to keep in mind. So because the change in enthalpy and the change in entropy in standard temperature pressure will determine the magnitude of the change in the Gibbs free energy. And because K, that equilibrium constant, is a measure of the ratio of the concentration of products to the reactants, you can express K in terms of Gibbs free energy, okay? And so finally you get this equation, which I hope most of you know. Delta G equals Delta G at standard conditions plus RT log of Q which basically just means it's equal to delta G at standard conditions plus RT log Q, okay? So this is is like straightforward stuff, hopefully. Now, R is basically the gas constant. So the gas constant is very similar to the Boltzmann constant in physical chemistry and it's expressed in units in energy per temperature per mole. While recall the Boltzmann constant, if you remember your chemistry, is given in terms of energy per temperature per particle. Okay, so it's a different, um, it's a it's a different ratio and proportion basically. So from physics from physical chemical point standpoint, the gas constant is basically a proportionality constant because it relates energy scale to temperature scale for a mole now of a particle or particles, a mole of particles at any given temperature. So units for gas constants are given depending on what system you're working in. But common when you're doing uh, biochemistry would be, the value is 8.3145 joule per mole degree Kelvin. Okay. So that is all prolegomena. That's all just like background chemistry, okay? To tell you that the, the again, Gibbs free energy is related to Q, that's the coefficient, by the equation delta G equals RT log QK. So changing Gibbs free energy less than zero, then the K is greater than Q. The reaction to proceed to the right to reach equilibrium. And then the opposite is the case if those values are reversed. Okay, so I basically just said that. Now, let's plug this in to thermodynamics of transport. Once again, we're talking about not, not a reaction like an enzyme catalyzed reaction. We're talking about moving molecules across a membrane. Here, I'm going to tell you that the free energy change which is, we can say also means chemical potential difference. Okay. For transporting a mole of some molecule from a region where the concentration, we'll call it C1. For example, concentration outside the cell to a region where the concentration is C2 or C, capital C in. This is the concentration inside the cell. So imagine glucose being transported. So you got delta G equals RT and T is just absolute temperature, the log of the ratio of C2, remember that's the concentration of the given molecule inside, right, divided by the concentration. Uh, C2 is the concentration of the uh, um, inside and C1 is the concentration outside. So it's C2 divided by C1. Okay. So a, you have a favorable then when you have a delta G less than zero, if the if C2 is far less than C1. Okay, C2 remember is the concentration inside it has to be less than the concentration outside. Then you will have when you're thinking about the transport of that across the membrane. So a transport of an ion across the membrane, you have to consider one more thing. So you know charged species, right? you have to consider the electrochemical potential in addition to the concentration differences, okay? Now, membranes work on electrochemical potentials. We've talked about this. We're discussing, for example, neurotransmission. So here, let me give you the equation. Delta G, change in free energy, equals RT. That's our gas constant and absolute temperature. Natural log of C2, that's concentration in, divided by C1, concentration out. Plus a couple of new terms, Z, F, delta, psi. Now, Z is the charge of the ion, and F is just Faraday constant, and delta psi is the membrane electrical potential. It's always in volts. Okay. Now, coupled transport or active transport is the following. Here you have delta G RT log C2 divided by C1 plus a new term, delta G prime. Now, delta G prime requires you have a coupled transport, for example, ATP hydrolysis, okay? So here's where you're driving the movement of a solute across a membrane, and it requires external energy, but the energy is coupled to the transport, right? So that would be like ATP hydrolysis. And that has to be negative enough, hydrolysis of ATP, to compensate for the unfavorable transport against the concentration gradient, especially when C2 divided by C1 is greater than zero, right? That is, (laughs) the concentration inside is already greater than the concentration outside. So that's why you need ATP, and that would be facilitated transport with a coupled transport mechanism, okay? So I think that's, in that basic physical chemistry. Now, if you think about a couple of regular biochemical pathways in the transport of molecules across membranes in a given cell, think about some of the things you have to move around. For example, you have to move glucose into the cell. If glucose is converted to pyruvate, like in glycolysis, you know that pyruvate, if it's going to be utilized in the mitochondria, has to be transported in the mitochondria we call dehydrogenase, does that. Remember, glucose can be bulk transported by a sodium transporter, or it can, be, it can be transported such as with the endosomal GLUT4 system, right? Amino acids also have to be transported inside with a, the group carrier for amino acids. Likewise, if you're going to use fatty acids, uh, you're going to have to move them into the mitochondrion. The way that you fatty, move fatty acids in is with the carnitine transferase, which converts fatty acyl-CoA's to fatty acyl carnitines. And remember that you have to go through two of those transport systems, because there's two sets of membranes in the mitochondria, to get the fatty acid all the way into the mitosol, or the matrix of the mitochondria, and the inside of it. And then it's re to CoA, and then beta-oxidation occurs, right? Likewise, you've got to remember that things that are made in the mitochondria um, have to be able to make it to the peroxisome, and and substances that are made in the peroxisome have to make it to the mitochondria. So this is amino acid transporting, lipid transporting, both glycerol lipid and sphingolipid, um, as well as, of course, group transport of high-energy intermediates that will facilitate the conversions intra So you're going to need group transporters for the four nucleotides, ATP, GTP, CTP, and UTP. And you're also going to need it for the deoxy ATP, deoxy CTP, deoxy GTP, and of course, deoxythiamine triphosphate. Likewise, you're going to need transporters for things like ions, which we just talked about, including the Faraday constant, right? Uh, in the equation, and that's things like potassium, sodium, calcium, magnesium, right? All right. So you have to have transport mechanisms for all of that. So what kind of transport mechanisms will we talk about? Now we can talk about the modality of transport of substances across membranes. So you have diffusional transport, which, of course, is the movement of substances from high to low concentrations across the membrane that would be down a concentration gradient, and you have both non-facilitated diffusion across a lipid bilayer, and that's very slow for most biological substances, or you have facilitated diffusion, which of course is an accelerated form of regular diffusion, and that's by making the membrane more permeable to specifically transported substances. And the way you make it more permeable is you generate protein channels or you have bulk protein carriers. Now, there's also active transport as opposed to diffusional. Active transport means it's actively driven, generally coupled to the hydrolysis of something like a high energy compound, such as ATP, getting rid of the gamma phosphoryl. Now, that transport is always going to be against a concentration gradient. It's going to go from low to high concentrations across the membrane. So we can call those pumps. Remember the proton pumping ATPase, for example, in the inner mitochondrial membrane. So another way of looking at the types of transport systems, the flavors, if you will, they could be uniport, where you have a concentration of a solute out and you move it in, that's a movement of a single molecule at a time. Um, Linear vectorial, or you can have a simultaneous transport of two different molecules in the same direction, like A going into from out to in, B going from out to in at the same time. That's called SIM port. And then you can have simultaneous transport of two different molecules in opposing directions that would be A goes in as B goes out. Okay. So if you have uniport, SIM antiport. So let's take a look at facilitated diffusion versus non-facilitated. If you plot the rate of the transport on the y-axis of a graph with increasing transport going up and you plot against that on the x-axis, the concentration difference across the membrane, passive transport is going to look like a straight line. Okay. Going all the way from zero to whatever its maximum will be. And we'll call that a non-saturable because it's it's basically going to be a horizontal line which will increase. The rate of transport will increase as the concentration difference across the membrane increases. Okay. So it's non-saturable. However, facilitated transport looks more like a hyperbola. Where you have real rapid rates of transport and very low concentration differences. But as you get to higher and higher concentration differences across the membrane, it will reach an equilibrium, which is the maximum rate when basically all of the facilitators for transport are occupied, such as a bulk transporter of a molecule, right? All right. Now, there are two major mechanisms for facilitated diffusion. There is a transported molecule which can move through protein pores, okay? And then there are carrier molecules which will move through the membrane itself, kind of in a flip-flop way where they're open to the interior of cytoplasm of the cell, they pick up solutes, and then when they enter into the hydrophobic region of the membrane, They turn around 180 degrees, and by the time they reach the outer leaflet, they're pointed in the outward direction towards the extracellular matrix. Now, that's, of course, different than a protein pore, where you've got two membrane proteins on either side of the hydrophobic wall of the membrane, and bulk compounds can be transported within that channel or pore, okay? So the one with the moving the compounds and then flipping the protein, one way of considering that is like an ionophore, something which will bind to an ion because it has a reverse polarity, and then will release it, and that's based on electrostatic repulsion, electrostatic attraction. That's one type of facilitated diffusion. So with glucose, for example... Glucose binds inside its transporter. It's transported from the outside to the inside. And then as a transporter reconfigures its structural functional domain within the membrane, the glucose molecule that was embedded within that um, transport protein complex is lost via dissociation into the cytoplasm, okay? It's a very simple uh, model for that, okay? So Gramcidin a is, a is a protein, which is a channel forming ionophore. And it is a, is a cluster of alpha helices that go from, which has a very tight hydrophobic core, and therefore the pores hydrophobic which is connected to the outside from the inside by this alpha helical structure, right? So it's a really common way to move through substances is to generate a pore that will facilitate the transport of the uh, solute depending on its chemical structure. If it's hydrophilic, then the core of that pore is gonna have to have hydrophilic amino acids If it is hydrophobic, then the core of that pore is going to have to have hydrophobic or neutral amino acids, okay? Now, all of that is, again, those are diffusion, are different for something like ATP-driven active transport, okay? That's something that we've already introduced, and now I'm going to explain a little bit about that, okay? So you have a classical um, ionic transporter called the NK-ATPase, or sodium potassium ATPase. So it has no less than eight membrane-spanning helical domains. Um, most of the protein is in the membrane. Some of the protein, which can be phosphorylated and therefore uh, can associate with controlling this protein, uh, sodium potassium ATP is, is in the cytoplasm. So the amino terminus, the carboxy terminus are both actually in the cytoplasm. Then you have these eight core membrane, uh, transmembrane spanning regions, which are mostly alpha helical. You have a little bit, a, a loop structure, two loop structures that make it just barely outside the cell. Now when I'm talking about all these structures, these are all amino acid sequence structures. Okay? And that large loop sections in the cytoplasm, one of its functions is the fact that it can be post-translationally modified by a kinase phosphatase system which upon phosphorylation, dephosphorylation will control the sodium potassium ATPase itself, okay? That's one way of controlling it. So for example, you start off with the uh, with a with the protein that is phosphorylated, okay, and it picks up the potassium from outside. So now you have a phosphorylated um, sodium potassium ATPase with potassium ions. You can pick up two actually. Then it gets moved from the outside to the inside of the membrane by flipping the entire protein 180 degrees, and that's facilitated by ATP hydrolysis, as in an ATPase molecular motor. Now you've got the E, we're going to call E now the protein itself, E-2 potassium, now charged with ATP, so that it will be able to release the potassium inside the cell. okay? Now you've got an EATP, and it's going to pick up now three sodium ions from internal to the cell. It will hydrolyze the ATP. So at the beginning, ATP took the place of phosphate. The, the inorganic phosphate that was actually bound because it was a kinase reaction to the E-complex. So the ATP took the place of that uh, PI during the mobilization of potassium inside of the cell. Once the potassium is released, you have an E-ATP, which is, again, opened proximally to the internal of the cell. It picks up three sodium. So you, you brought in two potassium, now you pick up three sodium. So now you have E-3-sodium ATP, Now you hydrolyze that ATP, you make ADP, but you leave the phosphate in this protein domain with the E plus the three sodiums. But the sodium now can be released externally. Now you have E E phosphorylated plus two sodiums. You lose the rest of the sodiums after the next change in condition. Now you've lost all three sodiums, first one, then two more. Now you're able to pick up, because you're completely back to the beginning, two new potassium ions and go through the process again. Okay, so that's kind of how the functional cycling of a sodium potassium ATPase works by using the hydrolysis of ATP and using that gamma phosphoryl to be recognized as the appropriate substrate that is a conformational change other sodium potassium ATP so it can pick up those two potassium ions. That's the way it turns. That's the way it goes down, right? So another way of looking at it is you've got the, um, okay, let's go internal first. You've got the, now we'll do, I will do external first because the internal, the, the, we do internal last time. So you got an E1 with three sodium ions. Okay. And that's inside the cell. Okay. We'll do that way. E1, three three sodium. Okay. ATP in the presence of magnesium will make an E1 ATP, three sodium ions. Then you will hydrolyze and you'll make ADP. Now you're left with E1P, so just phosphorylated, right? Plus three sodium ions. So that's the formation of a high energy. When When you do that, What you're actually doing, you're transferring that phosphate and forming a high energy as spartial phosphate intermediate, which is part of the enzyme complex. So now you that transports across the membrane, or turns it makes that one hundred eighty degree shift. Now you get the three sodiums left in on the outside, and now you are E two phosphorylated. You pick up two potassium ions that are now outside. You make an E two P plus 2K. You get phosphate hydrolysis with just passing water over that phosphoester bond. Now you got E2, 2K, and now you're able to bulk transport the E2 back across by releasing two potassiums and picking up three sodiums on the other side. Okay, so that's a breakdown of a couple of transport systems. I'm going to stop here. We'll continue soon. Bye for now.